The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Please turn with me, if you would, to Genesis chapter 8. So tonight we're continuing in our series. We're going through the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. The series is called Our Story Begins, because even though the Bible is God's story, he has graciously included us in it. Without God creating us and sustaining us, saving us, we would have no story. But because of his great love for us, he has done all those things and more. Genesis is helping us to see where we came from, why we are here, how we should live, and where we are headed. So last week, we saw Noah and his family on the ark for over a year. They had to cling to God's promises and remember what he had told them. Now, during that time, Noah surely fought with discouragement and weariness from the journey. But in looking at how he handled it by God's grace, we were encouraged to remember that the prize is often in the process, not just the destination. We like efficient results, and we like reaching destinations quickly, but God has an eternal vantage point, and his ways and his timing are always perfect. And if you'll grab a hold of that truth and believe it, it'll help your life, and it'll help you be faithful in your walk with Jesus. This week, uh, the long-awaited time has arrived, Noah, uh, his family, and as far as we know, the first and biggest zoo ever is going to unload now off of the ark, okay? So here they come. Uh, they're about to get to step out on dry land. So let's read the verses here, and we'll see what the Lord has for us. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 8. This is the second half or so, verses 15 through 22. So I'll start in verse 15. We'll read down to the end of the chapter. Here we go. Then God spoke to Noah, saying, Go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may breed abundantly on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wives and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by their families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth, and I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. Praise God for his word. All right, we're going to go back to the top here. We'll start working through uh, 15 through 19. So the first big thing I want to point to you, uh, point out to you is this. Uh, verse 15, sorry, this starts 16. It says, uh, God says to Noah, go out of the ark. Go out of the ark. Now, unfortunately, I don't know what translation you're holding. Many translations will say, come out of the ark. And that it may seem like a superficial difference of no importance. You might be like, okay, here we go, Bible nerd time. This is going to be one of those. It's, it's really not. This, this, this word go is very important. Why is it important? It's important because 
That word go, it echoes throughout the rest of the story that we see recorded in scriptures. Let me ask you some things. Hopefully these, these will resonate and you'll, you'll hear the echo uh, that is, is here. What did God tell Moses to say to Pharaoh, right? God pulls Moses aside. He says, I want you to go give a message to Pharaoh, the one who's holding my people down. What did he want him to say to Pharaoh? Let my people go. Let my people go. So what does that mean? That means, and what was the reason for, right? He goes on to explain, so that they can worship their God. And we know what the story is, right? So they come out from the Exodus, the Red Sea happens, and and we might think, well, all he did was rescue them, and then they went and wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. But that was not the original intention, was it? The 40-year wilderness wandering was a result of a lack of faith and grumbling in the people. They, they needed a process themselves to walk through to be ready then for what the next thing God had. But really, what God was doing was he was bringing those people out so they could be his special people set in a place and a light to the nations around. These are the things that God described. This is why he gave them the laws that he gave them. This is why he said, you're my people and I'm your God. He said, let my people go. What was the exchange between God and Isaiah in Isaiah 6? Here's what it is. Then I heard the voice. So let me set the stage in case you're not familiar with this. If you're not familiar with this, I would suggest that you go get familiar with it because this is a earth-shattering set of verses. Isaiah, he encounters the glory of God in the temple, right? He says, I'm there. The glory of the Lord filled the room. There's, there's a flaming coal, and he's totally undone about his sin and the sin of the people around him. And then him and God have this exchange. He says, then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here I am. Send me. And here's what God said. He said, go and tell this people. And then he gives them the message, go. So what was God's question? Who will go for us? And when it comes time, when Isaiah answers, he says, here's what I want you to do. Go and tell this people. What did Jesus say to his disciples in Matthew 28? This is the last thing the Lord of glory said to his disciples before he ascends into heaven. What did he say? He said, go, therefore, And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to do all that I have commanded. And lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. What do you start with? Go. There's an echo. There's a thread. There's a connection. And it matters. As we think about that, what we come to understand is that God doesn't save for no reason. God has never saved anybody without giving them a purpose. Every single person who has received the grace and favor of God has been called to go. That's the truth. We need to ask ourselves, friends, am I going? When I look at my life, when I look at how I spend my time and resources, my thought life, am I going? Would, would, would my life, would the way I conduct myself, would going in obedience to God, would that be an accurate way to describe what it looks like. We need to ask ourselves, am I answering the call to be about the Father's business because I have received the empowering of his grace to go and to do it? Now, this may seem like a burden. It might seem like I shot right out of the gate today, starting with just throwing stuff on you. But friends, please hear me. What I'm proposing to you, it it actually is true freedom. 
It's freedom from the aimless wandering that is so common in modern life. It's freedom from the purposeless grind of pursuing some false sense of success. When you are going, when you are answering the call to go as a result of the fact that you have been brought from death to life and from darkness to light, to go and to take that light and to share it with others, it changes everything. It changes the way your home life looks. It takes away the potential of the enemy to get you to see your home life as just some kind of dull drag to see your work and, or your school or whatever you're doing is just some grind I've got to get through. When you are going, when you understand that I've been called to go, then everywhere and at all times I'm on a mission and I'm not on a mission, I'm on the mission of all missions so that people can know there is hope in Christ and eternity is possible with him. It changes everything. Are you going? Does that look like what your life actually bears out. God didn't save Noah and his family so they could just meander about the ancient world waiting for death. He gave them a mission and a purpose. God did call them to come into the ark. The ark did save them from the flood of judgment. But the very minute that water was dried up, what did God say? He said, go, go from the ark. What does that mean for us today? God isn't calling us to an ark. He's not going to flood the earth again, right? He already told us that. Friends, Jesus has called us to come to him in many various ways. Come to me just like you are. Come to me. I am the door. Come to me. I am life. Come. Come to me. But when you come and you receive and you drink of the water of that fountain that you're never going to thirst again, instantly and always there is then the command, the call, the beautiful blessing of being sent on mission to go. We do need to come to Christ, but we need to understand that the very moment we do, we are then called to go. You are called to go, but I'm unqualified. Oh, friend, I know, me too. None of us have any business bearing the good news of the gospel. None of us have any business trying to convince somebody that there is hope and life to be found in Jesus alone. None of us qualify for that. We're all riddled with our own temptations and difficulties and sin. Of course we're not qualified. But thankfully, we're not walking around wearing the tattered rags we've earned for ourselves. You see, God has taken those and he's thrown them away and he's draped across our shoulders the radiant white robe of righteousness that Jesus earned through his perfect life and death and resurrection. And so, yes, you're wearing borrowed clothes by faith today, but that's what qualifies you. You are called to go. Well, I just, I just came to Christ today. Then, friend, you have something to share with someone who has not yet come. You are called to go. Stop selling yourself short. Stop believing the lies of the enemy. Stop believing everything everybody's told you your whole life that would be counter to this very clear message that resonates throughout all of the scriptures. He told Moses to go and let, tell Pharaoh to let his people go. <laughs> he told Isaiah, go. Jesus told his disciples, go. The message is clear, and it rings throughout the scriptures. I hope you're as excited as I am as we see the connective tissue throughout the story, that this isn't isolated incidents, this isn't a bunch of fragmented moral stories, but we have one God doing one thing, and he's, he's bringing it all to a point, and we can trust in his sovereignty to do it. Praise God. Are you going? Is that accurate? Is that real for you? Well, what do I do if I think about it and I realize I'm not? 
Well, friends, the Bible's very clear. Then, then what you're not supposed to do then is be condemned. What you're not supposed to do then is crawl further back from the call of God. What you're supposed to do then is, just like we sang today, if I'm not strong enough to stand, I'll fall on you. We run to Jesus. We acknowledge that maybe we've been sinful or slothful or apathetic about the reality of the call of God for us to go. We acknowledge it. We trust that we can confess that sin. We can receive forgiveness, and we can have God's empowering grace to go from there. And we can trust. See, some of you, some of you can maybe get there, but then you're like, man, the pattern's too repetitive. I get to this, I, I get to this point where, yeah, I hear what you're saying. Yeah, I see that thread running through all the scriptures. I understand. I, I believe, yes, I am called, but I've, I've done that before. I've stepped up to that plate before, and then I've fallen on my face. I've sinned in some way, or I've gone hard for a week or two, or a month, or maybe six months, but then I, I seem to run out of gas, and I, that process is demoralizing. So I've decided and said, or maybe you didn't decide, maybe by deep default, this just happened, you end up just staying at the bottom of the ladder. I'm not going to climb anymore because when I fall from a few rungs up, it hurts. So I'm just going to stay down here. Dear friend, you were made for more than that. Quit counting on your own strength to make it up the ladder. Understand that God is going to supply absolutely everything you need and you can't do this anyways. It's going to be him. The question is not, can you be faithful? I know the answer to that question. Do you know the answer to that question? Can you be faithful? No. No. That's why God put Abraham to sleep and made a covenant with himself. Come on now. We can't be faithful, but we rest upon his faithfulness. It's not our ability to cling to the anchor. Christ has a hold on us, and he's going to help us, and he's going to be patient with our suffering and our failing and all of our frailty. So don't stay out of the game, guys. Don't, don't refuse to even start going because past experience says you won't keep it up. Don't be discouraged. Don't believe those lies. Right now. Right now, if you haven't been going, then go. The call is for you. Amen. All right, let's look at verses 20 through 21. You guys are sweating. That was, that was the word go. <laughs> no, that covered, that covered the first few verses. Don't worry. We're doing all right. Amen. All right, verses 20 and 21. It says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took every clean animal and of every clean bird, and uh, offered burnt offerings on the altar. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma. The Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth, and I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. Uh, there is some real deep and beautiful truth in this couple of verses right here. Um, and so when I say that, I, I hope that uh, you believe it, and I hope you're willing to pull on the scriptures by faith with me. But I also hope that um, uh, if, you've, if you've been around me for any amount of time, you know that when I say that, it means you're probably going to have a chance to be offended in the next few minutes. So <laughs> buckle up. It's going to be fun, okay? Amen. At least I warned you. So here's, here's what we're looking at. The, the, the very first thing, the very first thing that Noah does after stepping off the ark, is to do what? He sets up and has a worship service. The guy builds an altar. He's offering sacrifices. This is a chance to stop and acknowledge God's goodness. Noah takes the time to build an altar and offers a sacrifice on it. That is the very first thing that happens when he steps off the ark. Now let's look at this. What was the cost of this? Was this trivial? No way, man. Look at the cost. First of all, look at, look at the fact that what he does is sacrifice animals. Okay, what just happened? God just flooded the earth, 
and we're down to what? We're down to two of every kind of animal. We got seven of the clean ones, okay? We are not looking at a booming population with which to start the whole world over, right? We're, this is a limited supply. I mean, that, at that point, if, you know, <laughs> animals would be a hot commodity. Very, very valuable because we have to fill the whole earth again. That doesn't seem to be a deterrent. The incredibly high cost, the incredible amount of sacrifice it would be to take a couple of those animals, those precious few, and to sacrifice that to God seems to be what seems right to Noah. So the cost is high in terms of that. The second way it, it, the, the cost is very high is in terms of the time, the time that it took. So building an altar, first of all, we're talking about a stone structure. that He didn't just pile some sticks together. So this was a significant investment in time, a significant investment in time of preparing those offerings. Right, we talked about that, the intentionality of the Old Testament offering system. You didn't just, you know, hit the animal in the head with a club and toss it up on the altar. There was a, a, a preparation to that. And so there was a lot of time involved. And so if, if busyness was a valid excuse for treating the worship of God as a second or third tier priority, then I think Noah probably would have been excused. Okay? What, why do I say that? Well, I fully acknowledge that we all have a lot of stuff going on in our modern world of hustle and bustle. I think to some degree, uh, the, the ease that technology has brought us, we thought it would give us more free time, but actually what it's somehow done in a weird backwards way is it's made us more busy because we have more free time to fill, and we've gotten very good at filling it. And so all of us, all of us feel, unless you are totally just running against the current the current, current. Sometimes that happens when you're talking fast. If you're, unless you're just totally going opposite of the flow of culture at large, you probably feel overwhelmed. You probably feel very busy. But none of us, so that's true, and I'm acknowledging that, and I'm not saying that's not real, but none of us has been charged with repopulating the world and rebuilding all of civilization, right? Like, I got a lot on my to-do list for this upcoming week, there's a lot going on. However, God has not said to me, uh, I need you to make sure the world fills back up with living creatures and civilization gets to a good start here. That's a big task, right? That's, that's a to-do list of all to-do lists. And uh, I think you get my point. Noah was probably busier than we are. And yet, this is the way he decides to spend the first few minutes off of the ark. I think that tells us something. Now, one of the ways that I, I, I'm going to share something with you that I think points to the fact that maybe, maybe, largely, our heart and attitude as God's people has slipped away from what Noah exhibits through this altar building and sacrifice, Okay. Some of the most recent research out on the habits of people who claim that faith is a very important part of their life is startling. So the question asked, they're getting a gauge, are you somebody that faith's a big deal for you, right? So that kind of narrows down and, and makes this next factoid even more startling. A person that describes faith as a big part of their life, the average person who is considered to regularly participate in the weekly gathering of God's people is now doing that on average 1.8 times a month. Uh, 
I don't know, math is confusing, so how they got to 1.8, I'm not sure, but basically what you see there is two, right? But basically it's two times a month. That, I think, is indicative of perhaps some heart attitudes that have crept in to the church of God. And we're going to deal with it more, because some of you automatically, your, your, your legalism alarm is going off. You're like, uh-oh, uh-oh, this guy's about to do the legalism stuff. Well, just wait a second before you make that judgment, okay? Maybe. I don't think so. I hope not. I'm the last guy that wants to be a legalist. Jesus gets really ticked at them. So I try not to be very, very hard. But give me a little time. One thing I just want to pause and say is this. Language matters. And So when I was talking about the fact that people are doing this thing only 1.8 times a month, why didn't I say, which this is actually the way the stat was written, why didn't I say uh, people attend church, people who attend church regularly, people who attend church 1.8 times a month. The reason I didn't use the language they used in the study is because I don't think it communicates the biblical vision for what the church is. Uh, to say that we, somebody attends church regularly shows a fundamental misunderstanding of what the church is. The church is not a service. The church is not a place. The church is not, the church is not a time slot. It's a people. It's not a thing you can attend. It's a people who have been bought with the blood of Christ. Every time the word church in your Bible translates back to Greek, it's ekklesia. That means the called out ones. It's a reference to the people. Okay? And so I understand that sometimes, I probably, your legalism alarm may go off around me a lot, but I, just at least have some grace and think a minute before you make sure, stamp that, me with that stamp, because it's so important that we don't think of church as a thing we attend, a service we attend, a, a place, a building that we go. We need, to, we need to think about it the way God thinks about it, because when we don't think about it that way, sometimes that's probably what contributes to lackadaisical or apathetic attitudes towards what the church is called to do and be. Amen. Okay. Praise God. So that means people are participating in the weekly gathered worship of God half the time, basically. When asked, I'm not sure that everybody would cite an increasingly full schedule as the reason, but there is no doubt that is one of the most common answers. Okay? Now, and some of you might be saying on the other end of the spectrum, you know, Hey, that's great. That's great that that's, that's the stat. That means, you know, we, we don't want to be legalists, and, and you don't have to participate in, in the life of the church and, and gathered worship of God every week to be a Christian. We, 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 that's good. It, that shows we're breaking the bonds of old, rigid systems of legalism. But I, I just want to submit to you that sometimes we too quickly assume that we have progressed beyond the old-time practices or rigid legalism of those who have gone before us. Uh, let me read you something, please, from Jeremiah 6. Uh, I don't want you to try to turn there, but just listen, listen to what God is saying here. God is talking about the corruption of Israel leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem. Okay, so just hear me out on this. This is verse 13 of uh, Jeremiah 6. For from the least of them, here's what I want you to listen for. He's talking about the corruption of Israel leading up to the destruction, the judgment of Jerusalem. Just See if any of this resonates in, in, in maybe our current cultural landscape. For from the least of them, even to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for gain. And from the prophet, even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the brokenness of my people superficially, saying, peace, peace, but there is no peace. 
Were they ashamed because of the abomination they have done? They were not even ashamed at all. They did not even know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. At the time that I punish them, they shall be cast down, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, stand by the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. What I say before I read that? I said sometimes we're too quick to assume that the latest and greatest ideas that we have or breaking the bonds of old school religion or legalism, sometimes that's not what we're doing, friends. Sometimes we're casting off the very restraints that were meant for our good. Sometimes we're deviating from the ancient paths. The, 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 there are people that have gone before us that have walked a certain way and they have set a good example. And we should not always be trying to figure out based on the latest clamoring of our culture, how to totally disregard that and reinvent the wheel of how to try to accomplish the mission that God has given us. There's some alarming things here, and, 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 and maybe, maybe somebody's out here right now, and, and you, you don't like the tone of this sermon at all thus far. You don't, you're just not digging it, but here's what I, please listen to me. If that's you, maybe you've, maybe you've been exposed to a, a philosophy or a thought that says, you know, hey, um, we got to, you know, you got you to try to, you got to be nice all the time and only say sweet things to people because if, if you don't, they'll leave. Listen to me. <laughs> Here's what was happening in this day. They have healed the brokenness of my people superficially, saying peace, peace, but there is no peace. Who was doing that? That was the priests and the prophets who also were only doing what they were doing because they were greedy. Dear friends, I, 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 I will not do that. I cannot do that. And I hope that you would never want somebody to do that. I would hope that because the Spirit of God resides in you, that you want truth. And the reality is, you can paint a rosy picture all you want, but uh, sometimes the truth is, we're not ashamed. We don't know how to blush. Sometimes we will... We will <laughs> With, with, with absolute, just blunt, foolish ignorance, we will defend things that are simply the result of us not prioritizing the worship of our God, not prioritizing obeying him, and we'll feel really good about it. We'll actually flip it to such a degree that somebody that might bring to us a, a loving word of truth to try to help us see the error, they will try to make them feel like, well, you're just a legalist, so that's just your interpretation. I don't know if that's the way we want to go. I'm certain that's the way we don't want to go. You don't get much more of an ancient path than seeing how Grandpa Noah conducted himself here. Comes off the ark, what happens first? What is first priority? We've got shelter to build, We've got cities to try to get to plant crops or we're all going to die. Do you understand what I'm saying? I wasn't joking about civilization having to start from nothing here. This guy had a task of all tasks. There is a bunch of stuff to do. And yet, real important stuff. Well, my stuff's important too. I know, but, but all of civilization probably isn't hanging on your stuff, right? I'm, I'm just saying that there's a scale here. Real important things that no one needs to get done. What's the first thing? What's the first thing? We're going to stop. We're going to acknowledge God's sovereignty. We're going to thank him 
for his grace and mercy upon us, we're going to worship him. It's going to be first. I, th- I, think, I think one thing that hurts us, and I'm not getting, this is not me getting some legalistic argument about what day of the week the Sabbath is. If that's what you think I'm saying, just throw all that junk in the garbage. Romans 14 deals with that plainly. That's not what I'm doing. What I, what I do want to say, though, is I think sometimes the way our calendar works hurts us a little bit when it comes to this one issue of gathering as God's people for worship, for studying his word, for taking of communion. I think to some degree, for, for me at least, I think without intentional effort, I think of Sunday as the last day of the week. It's, it, and it, just, it revolves around work, right? Like work tends to be what dictates the cycle. Monday's the first day back, right? And so that seems like the, the first day of the week. But historically, uh, Hebrew and Christian calendars, that wasn't the case. Sunday was the first day of the week, the day that the Lord Jesus rose from the grave. And I don't know how much it matters, and I'm not trying to make some legalistic sticking point here. I'm just saying if in our minds... The day that we are gathering for worship, if we saw that as the first day of the week, that we're going, that that's the, we're giving the first to God. Is that what Noah did? That's what Noah did. And, and, and I don't, what was God's reaction again to this? The Lord smelled the soothing aroma, and the Lord said to himself, I'll never again curse the ground, even though every intent of a man's heart is wicked. This was a, this was a pleasing act to God. This is what God desires, is that we Surrender first, first things to him in, in, of time, talent, and treasure. So uh, you don't get much more ancient than, than Grandpa Noah here as far as looking for the ancient paths, looking for the, the paths of faithfulness that those have, who have walked before us have taken. Um, it was clearly a high priority for him to worship the Lord in this way. It was done at a very high cost. There is a reason that Noah is listed in Hebrews 11 among the heroes of our faith. He obeyed God. He gave 100 years or so of his life to build an ark, and then he floated on it for a year. And then he stepped off of it and sacrificed some more to honor and worship the Lord. I mean, can you imagine where your attitude would have been after 100 years of building an ark and then floating on it for a year? Do you think, do you think most of us would have come off and been like, first thing I need to do is find me some stones, everybody. We're going to build an altar here. We're going to burn some stuff, and we're going to tell the Lord Jesus how thankful we are. Well, it wasn't the Lord Jesus. He didn't know his name yet. But whether or not uh, he knew it, he was involved, right? So let's tell God how much we love him and how thankful we are. Let's worship God right now. I mean, I would have been fighting attitudes like, I built the ark for 100 years. I built the ark. I floated the ark, right? All that kind of stupid, foolish stuff that tries to rise up in us. There's a reason why we got a, we got a hall of faith in Hebrews 11 and Noah's name is in it. That, that's some obedience. That's, that's some right-minded affection for the Lord. Uh, Jesus actually knew that we would struggle with distraction and prioritizing the trappings of this world, and uh, obeying and worshiping him. Jesus knew that about us. So he, one of the things he did is he told this parable. This is in Luke 14. But he said to him, a young man was giving a big dinner and invited many. And at the dinner hour, he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is ready now. But they all alike begin to make excuses. The first one said to him, I've bought a piece of land. I need to go out and look at it. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I've bought five yoke of oxen. I'm going to try them out. Please consider me excused. 
Another one said, I've married a wife, and for that reason I cannot come. And the slave came back and reported this to his master. Then the head of the household became angry and said to his slave, Go out at once into the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the slave said, Master, what you commanded has been done. There's still room. And the master said to the slave, Go out into the highways and along the hedges and compel them to come in so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste of my dinner. What's Jesus saying? Here, here, here's some interesting things to think about. What, what happened? A guy bought some oxen, right? A guy bought some land. A guy got married. Are any of those sins? Are any of those even bad things? They are not. And yet, what are they listed as here? They're listed as excuses. Well, I've got a relationship that's more important than this one. I've got a business or, or whatever the deal is that's more important than coming to this dinner. And friends, I don't know if you think about the gathering of God's people like this as a dinner, but I think God does. I think he calls us to gather to feast upon his word as the family of God. That's what this looks like. That's what we're doing. Satan doesn't care if you're overcome by sin. He'll take that. If that's a way he can keep you away from God, sure. But he is perfectly satisfied if you were entangled in all kinds of permissible distractions. He's perfectly satisfied with that. Same outcome. He'll keep you away from Jesus. Let me read you this. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What does he say? Let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. What does that mean? That means surely sin can keep us from going and doing what God has called us to do. But there are also other things. There are maybe neutral or even good things that can be an encumbrance. And what does that mean? That means we cannot settle as followers of Jesus for asking, is something permissible? That's weak. We have to ask if it's profitable. I heard an excerpt from a sermon from John Piper recently, and he said it this way. He said, you can't just ask, is something sin? That's pitiful. Here's what I need to ask. Is it going to help me run? Is it going to help me run? Is this thing I'm thinking about investing time or energy into, is this thing I'm thinking about giving some of what God has given me towards, is it going to help me run? And if it's not, then what should we do with it? Some of your legalism alarms are still going off. Friends, the goal here is not to get you to feel guilty if you have bought into the lie that participating in the normative pattern of weekly gathered worship, practice for the entirety of the church's existence, is not important or worth your time. This is not a guilt trip. Why? Because if you feel guilty and gather with God's people more consistently as a result of this for worship and teaching and communion, we will have totally missed the point. If you are gathered with God's people every time there's an opportunity because of guilt or duty, you have missed the point. Did you hear what I just said? That's real important. If you're somebody that, you're, you're, hearing, you're hearing what I'm saying, you're hearing that, okay, yeah, you know what? Maybe one indicator, 
may be one indicator of whether or not my heart is totally overcome and overwhelmed with love for Christ, may be one indicator of where the priorities in my life lay, is to what degree I prioritize the normative weekly pattern of gathering with God. Well, why is it going to be weekly? We already went through creation, guys. There's a seven-day week, right? And then they turn over. And God said, one of those days, it's you and me. Right? Okay, we'll quit arguing about that. Here's the point. Whether you could miss the point if you just feel like, oh, yeah, you know what, my arm's twisted, so I'll, I'll change my behavior. I'll do it better. Or if you're somebody that, if, if the if the doors are open, if the call is put out for God's people to be gathered, you're there every single time, but the motive behind that is just guilt or duty, we've totally blown it. The point is to examine our hearts and ask this question. Is worshiping and obeying God my highest priority? Is worshiping and obeying God my highest priority? Whether you're somebody that knows, you know what, I probably fall into the statistic of somebody that has let it become less of a priority for me to gather with God's people. We don't want to just change the behavior. We want to ask why. And if you're somebody that has never missed an opportunity to gather with God's people for worship ever since you were born, I want you to ask yourself why. We have to ask why. Why do we have to ask why? Because Jesus isn't trying to modify our behavior, guys. He wants our hearts. It's the whole deal. That's what he's after. And you may not think that anything I'm talking about is an indicator. You may be somebody that is so comfortable to say, listen, man, I love Jesus, and just because I don't, you'd probably say, go to church every week, doesn't mean I don't love Jesus. Well, okay. Will you go read Jeremiah 6 without me later and see how he describes people that were refusing to take the old path, they got to the point where in their sin, man, they didn't even blush. They didn't even know how to anymore. But yeah, they felt no conviction about it. Don't, <laughs> don't let the fact that you aren't convicted about it right now be an indicator that you're okay. Let's push a little harder than that. Let's press into God's help and guidance a little more. Let's consult his word a little deeper than whether or not I feel convicted about it because there are many times in the Bible, and hopefully we see it in the overall human experience, we can get pretty wretched in our attitudes and not feel bad about it. It doesn't mean it's cool. <laughs> it doesn't mean God's like, oh, well, yeah, no problem. Let me, on that, I'm about to move away from that. We're gonna, the next question we're going to ask is, why does this costly offering please God so much? This costs Noah a lot. Why is that so pleasing to him? We're going to deal with that, but just let me, let, me, let me just read this to you. This is Hebrews 10. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, 
not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Why did I say that? I said that because I know, I know that there are There have been charlatans. In Jeremiah 6, it's clear. He said, the priests and the prophets, they're doing what they're doing because they're greedy. And I know that you you might make this connection in your mind. Well, yeah, well, well, sure, the preacher wants me there because he wants me there because that somehow makes him feel like he's got cultural influence and and maybe he thinks that's going to equate to offerings. Listen to me right now. Maybe that's true in some places. Maybe that's the case, but that can't, you can't let that dictate what God thinks about it. Here's the question we need to ask ourselves. What does God think about it? What does God's word say? And Hebrews 10 makes it clear. Why? Why do we gather together? Because we are coming together in full assurance of faith because he who promised is faithful. And then it says, let's consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Do not forsake the gathering of ourselves together. This is the habit of some, but let's keep encouraging one another. Do you see what that's sandwiched with? It's not just about, do I think, if I I make the effort to gather with God's people, do I think I'm going to feel bless me happy when I leave? I absolutely believe every time you do that, you make the choice to gather with God's people, you will be blessed. But what it's really about is, is understanding that when the body of Christ comes together, it's a body and you have a place and a part in that. And so that that leads to the question, are you a church attender or are you a part of a church? Because everything I'm saying doesn't make any sense if you're somebody that just attends church. If you're somebody that goes and consumes religious goods and services, then all I'm saying is nonsense. And this won't make any sense whatsoever. But if you are a part of a church, you understand the analogy of God's God's church being the body of Christ, then you know that when you gather with God's people, you're not just coming to receive something from the Lord, but the call, the sandwich bread around the command of Hebrews 10.25 is let's see what you bring into that situation. What is God calling you to do and be a part and be a blessing, encouraging one another to love and good deeds? Can I, I'm going to summarize all that in a way that I think is really helpful. It's not about you. Now, I told you about 15 minutes ago you'd have a chance to be offended. Yay. All right. (laughs) (laughs) Guys, here's here's where this is going. Can I I just pull the veil back for you a little bit? (laughs) So now what church leaders are doing is trying to figure out Okay, how do I make everything work in the reality of the fact that people are only going to come and gather with God's people 1.8 times a, week, a month? That's what ends up happening. What ends up happening is, it's, it's this idea that is in Jeremiah 6. They're saying, peace, peace. The, the healing of my people here is superficial. At some point, somebody has to say, no! This far and no more. And... I know I'm not the only one, but I'm going to be one of the ones. I'm going to be a watchman on the wall. I'm going to say, hey, I'm I'm going to go ahead, and at the risk of being labeled a legalist, I'm going to say, I don't really think that on average, taking one time a week to gather with God's people for the study of his word, to encourage one another towards love and good works, and to worship together and to take communion together, is asking too much. Now, let me give this caveat. There are situations, there's sickness, there's illness, 
um, there's brand new babies. There's sometimes job situations. We have a lot of nurses that are pouring their life into serving people in desperate situations, and they can't control the way that shift swings. And so I'm not trying to create some legalistic number of services you have to attend to be in Grandpa Noah's church attendance club, okay? That's not what I'm doing. Please don't take what I'm doing and make it that. What I'm calling us to is an examination of our hearts, an examination of our motives, an examination of our excuses. Whether from the outside it looks like gathering with God's people is a high priority to us or not. Amen. I'll amen myself because I know that was tough. Amen. Why does this costly offering please God so much? Is, is God an egomaniac? And, and so that's why he requires that our time and, and our resources be surrendered to him as our first priority? Is, is, is this an ego trip? Why, why is God so pleased that the very first thing Noah does when he's got so much else on his plate that matters, these are life and death things that Noah's dealing with, why does it please God so much that the very first thing, this precious time and these resources is, is invested in worship? And in sacrifice to him. The, the, the pleasing aroma language, it echoes through the rest of our story. The same way that word go does. This pleasing aroma language, it shows up again and again. It's going to help us answer this question. Is God an egomaniac? Is God unreasonable in what he's doing? I, I need to say this. When, when, when it talks about the fact that he sacrifices these animals and, and this aroma, this is anthropomorphism, right? This is not that actually the smell of roasting meat reached God's nostrils that he doesn't have and that that was what was pleasing to him. That As much as I would like for this to mean that God is pro-barbecue, um, and I really wish it was that simple because I'm pro-barbecue, uh, that's not what it's talking about, clearly. What it's talking about is, is, is the heart, the intention of the giver, of this, this offering was pleasing to him because of the way in which it was given and the reasons for which it was given. Uh, the sacrifice was pleasing, not the meat smell, okay? We just I don't know if that was clear, but I needed to make sure we were all there, okay? The offering wasn't the point. It was the heart of the person giving it, okay? So where does this language show up again? How does it help us see what's going on? Um, in 2 Corinthians, we see this. It says, but thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us, through us, the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a, fragrant, a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Did you hear, did you hear what that said? Through us, the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God, among those who are being saved. See, we are to take it a step further than Noah and those in the Old Covenant. They gave the first of their flocks a very costly sacrifice. They would slaughter that animal, and they would heave it up onto the altar, and it would bleed out. Incredibly high cost. But friends, God requires far more of us, far more of us than that, because we, we throw ourselves on the altar. The requirement for us is that we throw ourselves on the altar. Doesn't Romans 12 say that? We offer our bodies as a living 
sacrifice. Here it says that we are a fragrance of Christ to God. Why? Why is that the case? Why is more required of us than was required of Noah? How is that fair? How does that help us understand what God's doing? Why is God asking for all of us, for us to be the sacrifice? It's because of the sweetest aroma of sacrifice that has ever reached the throne room of God. Ephesians 5 verse 1 says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Friends, we give everything because Jesus went first. Jesus gave everything. The Old Testament sacrificial system, it ended with him because he didn't put an animal up there. He put himself up there. And the call is, we don't, thankfully, it doesn't mean we're getting on a Roman cross and being crucified. Thankfully, it doesn't mean that our blood has to literally be shed. Enough blood was shed. Sufficient blood was shed. The glorious, perfect blood of the Lamb of God was shed. No more blood is needed. But what should be the response to the fact that that perfect Lamb submitted himself to death in our place for our sins is that we then want to follow. And we want to grab ourselves and throw ourselves on that altar. And we want to give everything. All of it. That's what it looks like. The time, talent, and treasure that we give back to God, all of it should cost us dearly. Obeying God is a sacrifice, but why? I asked you earlier, is God an egomaniac? Why did the aroma of Noah's incredibly costly sacrifice, why was that pleasing to him? Why is that the case? Friends, it's because every single time Every single time we give in a way that costs us, it reminds us of that greatest sacrifice. It is an act of love. It's not a God that's an egomaniac. He knows we need reminded constantly of the beauty of the sacrifice of Christ. He knows that we need a constant reminder, ability to relate to and to feel the reality of the sacrifice of Jesus. And so when we give and we pour ourselves out for the sake of being an aroma to God, an aroma of, that is pleasing to him, when we take up that occupation, we're being reminded over and over again that somebody sacrificed far more than we ever possibly could. We're being brought back to a remembrance of the gospel every single time. And I know, we know for a fact, the way that language ties together, that Noah's sacrifice wasn't bringing any salvation, right? He's, he goes on to say, man, I'm not going to flood the whole earth again. I'm not going to do that. Uh, I'm not going to curse the ground because of man's evil. The flood didn't fix the evil nature of men's hearts. Neither did, did what Noah did on the altar that day. Uh, but, but God knew another was coming. <laughs> another was coming that would. Praise God for the full and complete sacrifice of Christ and the pleasing aroma that that is. Thank God that we get to be able to be brought in and also can be a fragrance that is pleasing to the Lord as we lay our lives down. Hallelujah. Verse 22 says, While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night, they shall not cease. There's a lot, of, a lot that could be said about that, but in light of everything else we've talked about, I want to key in on that very first line. It says, While... The earth remains. Basically, there's a promise here of, of, of constancy in, in the inconstancy, right? You've got seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter. You've got the changing of seasons. Some would say that before this time, the earth was covered with some 
type of thicker water vapor barrier. That's part of why people live longer, and that that was kind of dumped out during the flood. And so now the, the onset of seasons and uh, growing seasons and all of that. But we're, we're going to deviate from that, and we're just going to look at this one point. It says, while the earth remains, these things will be true. While the earth is here, you'll have seed time and harvest. You'll have cold and heat, winter and summer. While the earth remains. Here's what we need to understand in light of everything else we've talked about. The earth will not always remain. The earth will not endure forever. Second Peter chapter 3 says this, This is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you, in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, though which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water, but by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat? But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. As believers, we live in the tension of yearning for the end and our final victory and fulfilling our purpose to go into this world with the gospel that every single day God grants us to do so. There's a tension there. All the elements melting and stuff, that sounds scary, but I'm not worried about it because I know. I know where I'm at. I know who has me. It's Christ, my King. At the very same time, I can't just yearn for that day. I need to understand that that's in God's timing, and every day he gives us is another opportunity. But that's why this matters. We can very easily, through the busyness of life and everything that's going on, we can be lulled into a sleepiness, into a slumber, into a apathy and get caught in the grind of all of our pleasant distractions and our, our little permissible encumbrances. That can't be true of the people of God. We can't just walk around all the time saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. There is a day coming. God will not flood the earth. and There is a day coming when all this will be done and over. There is a finite point, and God knows it, when all of this comes to an end. And we have been given, Jesus talked in turn, he said, we've got we to work while the light, while it's daytime. While we have a shot, while we got a chance. It's not just about us coming to Jesus, receiving grace, and then hopefully eking out an existence until we can 
be with God forever. We have been called to come, and by, I hope you have come. I hope you have surrendered. If you haven't, that's step one. But if you have come and you have received the grace of God, friend, you are called to then go and to share it. This is the divine command. This is what we were made for. May we be a people that step up to that. May we be a people that are not quickly distracted by encumbrances, whether they be sin or not. And may we be a people that understand that time is short. There are mockers, it says. There are mockers will come in the last days, and they'll say, where is this God? Where is this God who said he's going to return? Everything's just happening as it's always happened. Dear friends, let us not be so foolish as to join them. Let us understand. There is, there, there is not an infinite amount of time. The mission is important. God's called us to be a part of it. May we walk in it with joy for our good and his glory. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Lord God, I thank you for these verses. I thank you for the old paths, the ancient paths. I thank you that Noah's shown us here something precious and beautiful. God, may we not assume that uh, we have progressed beyond the faithfulness that Noah showed here. May we not think that uh, we somehow have a better handle on what is legalism and what isn't. May we understand that fervently and passionately serving you is not legalism. That's not what that looks like. God, help us to quit running to that as a defense and an excuse for apathy and for laziness because we are all tempted in that, God. Father, forgive us if we have believed a lie when people have shouted, peace, peace, but there is no peace. Forgive us if we've ever contributed to a superficial healing of your people. Lord Jesus, we love you. Lord Jesus, we want to be the kind of people that the first and the best, it is our joy to give this to you. We want to be the kind of people that our life is a sweet-smelling savor and an aroma to you. We want to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. We want to be reminded constantly as we lay our lives down for the sake of your gospel, the cost that Jesus paid so that we, it's harder for us to get pulled into those distractions, no matter how innocent they may seem. Lord, help us not to be fools. Please help us not to be fools. Sometimes we are fools, Lord. Help us. Help us to see with your eyes and hear with your ears. God, please give us discernment. Please, by the power of your spirit, Lord, help us not to be duped. We just want to please you, Lord. We want to do all and exactly that you've created us to do. You are God and we are not, and we rejoice in that beautiful truth. Please help us walk these things out, God. Help us encourage one another. Lord, help us be humble if others come and challenge or encourage us. Help us, God, to sincerely care about spurring each other on to love and good works, seeking how to encourage one another towards running this race with fervent passion. God, please show us. We are asking you to show us not only the sins that may entangle our feet and slow us down from running, but even the encumbrances, the seemingly good things or neutral things, things that maybe we've not even thought to ask if those are holding us back from serving you in the way that you desire. You are worthy of us at least asking those questions in a sincere 
and real way. We ask, God, that if we come asking that you'll be faithful to answer, please show us. We love you, Master, and we worship you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.